Hey everybody, welcome to Waltrip Unfiltered. We've got a special guest today, my buddy from Las Vegas, Nevada. Brendan Gaughan joins us on the podcast. Brendan, thank you for uh, sharing some time with me and the Fox Sports fans and looking forward to sharing some stories with them. Honored to be on and we got a lot of old Napa stories to share too. We've been around each other for a while. That's exactly right. Brennan showed up and won championships in the West Series, in the Truck Series, won races, and almost had a chance to win the championship in Miami one day. We'll talk about that as well. Join us now for Walter Unfiltered. Brennan, thank you so much for uh, hopping on with me. How you been? Everything going all right? Yeah, you know, uh, Vegas is, like with all of us, Michael, we're sitting at homes doing Zooms and, uh, it's definitely interesting, but Vegas is slowly chugging back along. The casinos are doing okay, and my my little uh, cleaning company has turned into a big cleaning company now. So I got a chemical business that's doing great. And every once in a while, I still get to come play for at least one more race. And then then what I've been joking is that the hashtag not gone yet is hashtag finally gone now. <laughs> well, I I've enjoyed. So I did what you did, you know, I got to run a race here and there and, and really enjoyed my chance to, to get to wind down like that. And uh, the other day I was contemplating talking to some of the guys and maybe putting, to get, putting a deal together to run Talladega. And it, it just dawned on me the other day. I'm like, you know, I just don't really want to. And that's a great place to be with this racing stuff where you just say, you know, I did that enough. I had some fun and, and I really don't want to do it anymore. Well, people would think that, you know, what, how we could ever get to that point, they say what, but it's true. There is a point and, and that's where I finally gotten to. And you and I got to end up kind of the same way where we both love super speedway racing and everybody inside our sport thinks that we are both absolutely dumbest people alive for liking that racing. I love it. I enjoy the heck out of it. But the same thing, the beers asked me to come back to the Daytona 500 next year and look, the Daytona 500, I mean, Michael, it's the Daytona 500. And if I'm not sitting there going, ooh, I got another chance, you don't want to do it. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know. Do I want to do it? Well, and if you have that attitude, don't do it. So uh, I've, I've been blessed. I've been amazed with what the beers gave me the last couple of years. And Michael, I've run great. We have chances to win every time we touch the, touch the, the track with that beard oil team. And like I call it the mighty beard oil 62, meet my one employee in one race car and we show up and race with the big boys. You, you do a great job too and are, are able to wedge your way up into the top 10 and uh, a thrilling moment at Talladega. Uh, that was crazy. You, you flipped over the field. They were, they were hey, going under talent. you. Landed on my wheels, Michael. I say it with all talent, all talent. <laughs> Stuck the landing as they say. <laughs> Russian drugs, still mad for this. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a bit about, I want to know about Las Vegas. Um, I haven't been out there. I see pictures and the strip looks deserted. Um, what has it been like? Your family is rooted in that town and have been for, for your whole life. Um, how, how's it going and what do you see? What's your perspective of, of, the, of the future for Vegas? You know, it's, it's tough right now. There's still about 15 to 17 casinos that still have not opened. Um, a lot of places have not just, there, there isn't enough business, there isn't enough people around town. Um, places on the Strip that still haven't opened. So, I mean, it, it definitely is weird. Uh, sadly for me, like you said, I'm a Vegas guy. My grandfather got here in the 40s. Vegas is our people. My customer is a local customer. You know, my, my dad was, was a pioneer of the locals market. So, when there's dealers on the Strip not working, Michael, that's my customer that's not working. Those are the people that are us, that we are them. So, it hurts. 
The South Point is chugging along. We're trying to keep things rolling. You know, we're trying to be the little engine that could. A bunch of the local places, the Fertitta family and the stations, casinos. We're trying to do all we can for the town and keep things going. A couple of the Fertitta casinos that are closed have been transferred into uh, COVID testing facilities where they have drive-through full-time. That's what they're doing. So they have all that space to do it. I mean, we're all trying to do what we can, but the town is definitely not what you're, you're used to seeing, Michael. There isn't a single show on the Strip that's active. There's not, a, they're not allowing it. There's no entertainment. There's no concerts, no, no shows, no Cirque du Soleil. The Strip is basically just casinos and some hotels. How about that? And your cleaning business you spoke of, was, was that built out of necessity <laughs> for the well, COVID? Or did this just happen to uh, play into what you were already working on? You know, you know what they say, Michael, rather be lucky than good many times in life. And uh, I stepped in, in, in a really big pile of poopy and came out smelling like a rose. Um, I had a kitchen cleaning company. It was chemicals that I, I lucked my way into. A guy was trying to sell something a couple of years ago, couldn't sell it. He took it to us. My people said it was great, um, but we weren't going to buy it. And the guy sold me his company. And a lot of times in Las Vegas, is you know, a lot of times who you know, as long as, as well as what you know. And so I was able to, to get this kitchen cleaning company, this chemical that he had and blow it up. And it was doing well for us. I mean, I was doing all right, I'm, I'm, you know, things are good. Well, when COVID happened, you know, I, I work at the casinos as well with my father and he tasked me and my partner, my old spotter, the Batman, Bill Holbrook. A lot of the old racers remember Batman up there with me, the spotter that shook so bad, everybody thought he was, you know, having, having a seizure on the stand. And, uh, the Batman and I are partners, and, and my dad said, you get us ready for us to reopen. Yeah. And, and he tasked me and Billy with going out and doing all the COVID preparations, writing the gaming control board, making the rules on what we had to do to be allowed to reopen safely, finding out what products, getting the PPEs, getting the disinfectants, the sanitizers. And next thing you know, I've got millions of masks in my warehouse. I've got millions of gloves in my warehouse. I've got... I've got sanitizers up the yin yang, disinfectants. We're selling to all the local casinos. We're selling to all the local companies. We're not, we don't even really advertise it. We just, just the people we know is who we're trying to take care of. But we were, we were put in charge of, of, for my family, of writing our rules for gaming and getting us open and being allowed to open safely so our employees and our customers were, were felt comfortable. And it's exploded. I mean, it's turned into a, a as anybody knows, I mean, you know, just try to buy a pair of nitrile gloves anywhere right now if you're, you know, if you know what those are or, or you know, masks, how crazy all those things went. And for me, it's worked out, you know, sadly, I mean, you hate to say that somebody's profiteering off of something like this, but, you know, necessity came up. We found a way. And the main thing is I knew what everybody was trying to sell to the South Point for. You know, they're trying to sell, sell us a glove or a mask or a sanitizer for this price. I know what they're trying to sell it for. And I'm looking, going to manufacturers going, they're robbing us blind. And so I went and I give an honest deal to the guys we take. We charge, we're, we're leaving a ton of money on the table, but we're just trying to get everybody back open and it's working well for us right now. Yeah, I, I, I know you pretty well. And I know that uh, profiteering, it, it wasn't your, uh, wasn't your goal. Like, and and I, I'm curious because I'm like a lot of people, not as knowledgeable on the COVID world as you've become, obviously. How effective have you seen your changes? And, and, and not only that, it's, it's going to make us safer and better as we move forward, no matter what happens today, right? 
well, there, there's two sides of all these coins. You know, we're, we're so filled with chemicals in the world, you know, that everybody talks about cancer causing chemicals and all these things. So before COVID, there was almost a, a, a trend towards that less chemical, you know, try to be more, more eco-friendly, non-cancerous. When COVID happened, you need things that just flat out kill viruses. And so you've had to balance kind of those two things. And I've learned what does work, what doesn't work, what is more real, what isn't more real. And we just, we went out and Michael did as many things as we could to find the best products to disperse the best ways. And then my deal is, I'm Michael, me and you, we didn't work on race cars often anymore, right? I mean, we had a team of people putting seats in and seat belts. Same thing at the hotel. I'm not the guy cleaning the bathroom anymore, cleaning a hotel room, cleaning the kitchen. We have people that do that. So before I make any decisions, I take all these to them. I get all the chemical information. I get all the knowledge. Say, this is safe. This isn't safe. I like this. I like this. Then I take the choices and I take it to the people that use it. And I go, do, do you like this shape? Do you like, do you like, it? will this work? Can you handle this? If they don't like it, guess what? I'm not, you don't force them to use it. You find something else. And we, we've done doing that. So most of our stuff, the employees feel better about most of our stuff. The optics too, Michael, the optics of things are really important. And take NASCAR, the, 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 the safer walls and all these things that we've done in our sport to make us safer, right? But there's a lot of optics that go with things. You know, there's some things that we do that really don't make us a lot safer sometimes, but it looks like we're going the right direction. So you got to keep heading that way. Well, the optics of you want to be seen that you have all this stuff so people know it's there and it's safe. Right. So at the South Point alone, we have over 450 sanitizing dispensers all over the casino floor. I know exactly how many because I put all them in. And, you know, the Stations Casinos, they bought over 2,000 dispensers for sanitizers in all their casinos. And you probably didn't need that many, but the optics are we want everyone to know that you only have to go 15 feet to touch a slot machine button. And then when you get up, you can find a sanitizing station to sanitize your hands, a disinfectant wipe station to wipe, your, wipe the machine down. You got to give those optics. So it's optics with the proper products. Well, it's your story to me is, is amazing. Growing up uh, in that town, uh, playing college basketball at Georgetown, and then winding up in NASCAR. Um, I, obviously, your, your, your experience at, in college has given you the, the mental fortitude to, to look at this, this, this pandemic that we're in the middle of and say, I can make things better. I know I can make it safer for our customers and I know I can make it safer for our people. So that tells people a lot about who you were growing up. You had your eyes wide open, you were watching everything. Um, but tell me about when you were a kid playing sports and, and how you wound up. Uh, let's start there. Like, tell me how it all started for you. Uh, you know, I mean, un you guys on the East Coast all grew up, especially you, your family in particular, you know, I mean, you go so far back with circle track and dirt track and all that. Well, out here on the West Coast, we have desert racing. And, you know, you and I, of course, know the Baja 1000 and all those, the, the Robbie Gordons and those things. My father was a desert racer since the 60s. Grew up racing the desert for fun as a hobby. I grew up a little desert rat, just a little kid out there playing. We used to, you know, joke and say we're making dirt castles. They don't stand up very well. And... In the desert, though, unlike NASCAR, where you can, or, or, you know, your local short track, where you get to watch daddy go around 
hundreds of times right in front of you, you know, it's a 400 mile race that you see dad four times. So mom comes running out of the motorhome and says, here comes dad. Wow. Okay. Two and a half hours. He'll be back. You know, so that's what I grew up doing. And, and to me, the desert was the greatest thing ever, Michael. That's where I wanted to be. That's, I wanted to be like my daddy who doesn't, you know, and I wanted to go racing the off road. And I got my opportunity when I was young and I, but I was playing sports. I, I came with a family that when it was, I went to a little Catholic school and when it was time to play soccer, you played soccer. When it was time to play baseball, you played baseball. When it was time to play volleyball, you played, you know, you just, you played sports. And I was good at sports. I was good at racing. I got a chance to race for fun in the desert. And somewhere along the way, I got really good at racing. And somebody said, I could do this for a living. Randy Anderson said, I could do this for a living. And I go, really? You know, I was still, I was playing football in college and playing basketball in college. And I didn't think about racing as a career. And if it was, I wanted to go IndyCar racing. Off-roaders went IndyCar. Yes, to the folks at home, Michael, this shape used to squeeze into an IndyCar many, many inches ago. And so I, uh, that was what I was doing. But then life changed in 95 when a bunch of off-roaders invented the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. And Walker Evans was one of those guys that that was who I was driving for. And he started the truck series and I graduated college and they said, come drive this truck. You did, you didn't get an offer to go play in the NBA. Yeah, no, no. Uh, actually it's a really funny story. I got an offer to go to a CBA camp <laughs> and I ran into coach Thompson's office with my letter that they send to every graduating senior on a basketball team. And I said, coach, I got an invitation to a CBA camp. I go, I'm going to take my skills and try to represent you in the CBA. He grabbed the letter. He ripped it up. He said, boy, he goes, you ain't going to go nowhere with basketball after this. He said, go back home, make money. I was like, <laughs> yes, sir. I love you. And, but I, uh, yeah, the NBA was, I had a chance to go NFL, but I, I, at that point now, racing became what I wanted to do. So I left the football scene completely and I went truck racing and then raced a couple times. Thought this was pretty cool. Okay, went Winston West racing. And then uh, for me, one of the coolest moments ever was 98. I got to run the last, ra the last cup race in Japan. I was a Winston West driver, had a couple races. And here I am, Michael, Dale Sr., Bill Elliott, Jr., the first race they ever raced against each other. You know, and I'm in a, in a Winston West Napa car, you know, for Bill McAnally. And I'm in happy hour. And I've got, and back then, you remember, they sent you out in groups. Remember those days where... Yeah. Happy hour, they put you in a group and they said, stay with your group. I got no clue what I'm doing. All I know is that Dale Sr.'s in front of me, Dale Jr.'s behind me, and Dale Jarrett's in front of him. And they say, don't lose them, go. I'm like, huh? What? Who? And I, amazing time in Japan doing that. It was phenomenal. And I, I worked my way through it. You know, I, I, I won some championships in the West, had Napa Auto Parts for a bunch of years, went to the truck series, you know, won races, had chances to win championships. It goes, had an amazing opportunity to go drive for Mr. Penske, you know, and drove for Kodak. And, you know, you look back and, and it's amazing. We get to look back some days in our lives and go, look at, yeah, things maybe didn't go the way you all the way wanted. We didn't win the championships we wanted. We didn't, you know, people can say, but you look back at the names of, that, have, that have put their name on our chest. Dude, it, it's, it's amazing when you look back at the people that I've been able to represent and say that that was something that they wanted me to do for them. I'm honored to name some of those companies that we've done stuff for. And hell, I had a 20, what is this now? My 23rd year of racing NASCAR, you know, just, I got to race with Dale senior before, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm the last guy, one of the last guys left that raced with senior, you know, I mean, I think that's just amazing to say those of us that have been there that long, it's didn't quite go the way I wanted, but you know what? I had a hell of a run doing it my way. Yeah. And you sure did make a lot of people smile along the way. And I want to talk more in depth about the, the racing stuff, but I'm curious, I've heard stories about you, your basketball with, with uh, coach Thompson and, and uh, Alan Iverson and that you, you, uh, I haven't heard as much about your football. And I, I, before we get into the racing, um, can you share with me um, what it was like playing major college football and basketball? Uh, and, I and the, call Georgetown football major college football. We were Division One, so we were D1, but it wasn't quite major. Uh, I, I had really cool opportunity, Michael. I played small school football, but big school basketball. So you got to see both, you know. Everybody says, oh, I got, a, I, I got a scholarship to a D2 football school. I don't, if you get a scholarship to a D2 football school, I don't care where it is. You take that opportunity. Greatest thing a young man can do in their life is to, is to be able to have that camaraderie, that team feel. And it doesn't matter if it's in a stadium with 100,000 people or 5,000 people. There's still that team camaraderie. Um, football actually is what I was good at. Uh, I was an All-American in high school and had scholarships to big schools and I got hurt, which is you know, kind of a standard deal. A lot of kids get hurt. Uh, and I ended up going to play football for Georgetown. That's what got me into Georgetown. And they, they spent the time to fix my hip and do the stuff that I got injured. And I was all conference as a football player in college. And, and the football is what kind of got me there. And one thing I tell kids when, when I do speeches and stuff, and you know, when you're 18, Michael, you think the world is, you know, when something goes wrong, the world ends. You're 18 years old. It, trust me, it's not the world. <laughs> you know, it's just a window or a door that opened and changed. But the, I tell people the greatest thing that ever happened to me was getting hurt in high school. And people look and go, why was getting hurt the greatest thing that ever happened? Because if I don't get hurt, I take the scholarship to Nebraska or Notre Dame and I play big school football and I go a different route with my life. And if I don't get hurt, I don't end up at Georgetown and end up with John Thompson. And John Thompson is who help mold me into who I am today as much as my father. And so for me, the greatest thing that ever happened was getting hurt in high school. It put my well, direction. This, I would, I would pay. I'm, I'm so glad we're having this time together. I, I tell, and I, I know my listeners get tired of hearing this shit, but like doing the podcast to me is a bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of work. Uh, it's a bit of a pain to get things lined up. You don't want to, you know, you don't like bothering your buddies and saying, will you sit down and talk? Will you sit down and talk to me? Yeah, but it's not that <laughs> tough. We're on a computer. If this is the toughest thing we got, this is pretty easy right here. But, but, but what happens is when I do them, and uh, this is especially the case with you, I just it just brightens my day because uh, your enthusiasm, I would, I feel like I'm getting to hear your speech now, and that, that means the world to me. So, so thank you so much. Um, you talked about Coach Thompson and, and – um, was it was it just straight discipline? You you had to you stayed in the lines. You you had to be exactly uh, what that team needed you to be, and that's how you is that is that something you learned from him? No, I mean, look, everybody learns what they need from someone. Did I need the same thing that Allen Iverson needed? No. Was I going to go to the NBA and learn how to cross somebody up? No. You know, did I need what 
what Jerome Williams needed and learn how to get a rebound. No, I needed different things in life. And Coach Thompson, the greatest thing about Coach was he coached every player that went through there individually on their person. He knew this person needed this. He, he would know this person needed this. He was amazing about that. And for me, I needed stuff that a lot of these kids didn't need. And I had stuff a lot of them did need. You know, so for me, he, Coach was big, and especially as he's passed away, you've heard all these stories. He was big about taking inner city, young black children that had no real clue about, about certain things in life. And he taught them that. Taught them, I mean, as simple as teaching them how to hold a fork and knife teaching them how to be proper in a restaurant. There's things that coach taught more than basketball that was a big deal to him that to me, I had all that, all that junk. I had that, I've been doing that since Cotillion in the fourth grade. You know, I needed something different. Coach saw that and coach gave me that. Um, some of it was rules, some of it was following rules. But the main thing I learned back then, and if you, you'll laugh when I say this, I was the guy that could keep his mouth shut Uh, okay. Yes, I could. I did. I actually do how to then. And, but if John Thompson told me right now that I could run through that brick wall and that, you know, run through it, go to the other side, grab this and run back through. I'd look at that brick wall and go, Oh, this is going to hurt. All right, here we go. You know, and just, yes, sir. And you ran through that brick wall. And if he told you, you could do it, guess what? You'll walk out the other side and go, Holy crap, I did it. And so, I mean, that's, I, I, I will, that man, I love that man forever. And I got to speak to him about three weeks before he passed away and got to have one last great conversation with him. And it was, it was very important to me. Well, that's, that's incredible. I, I love mentors and people that make differences in, in your lives. And I certainly had a lot of people along the way that I looked up to and, and would not be where I am today, wherever that is, <laughs> you know, sort of like you, uh, the racing thing was like fun. Selling we, chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> the racing thing was fun uh, and I'm blessed and thankful, but uh, it's more the life lessons that, that I've taken from, from heroes of mine. You know, I, I have a documentary that's out and um, talks about my brother, Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt. They pretty much, that's how I was, that's how I got formed. That's how I got shaped. And that's, that's a pretty good trio of guys, you know, to. That's a hell of a mentorship right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you ever tell John Thompson that you thought you were going to be a, a NASCAR champion one day? So no, um, Coach Thompson hated racing. He didn't <laughs> understand it. He thought it was a, a phase I was going through. And the reason I got kicked off the football team in college, I found out years later, was because of John Thompson. Uh, he told the football coach to make me choose. The first football game was always the same week as the last race of the season in Wisconsin. And he told the football coach to make me choose between racing and football. I told the football coach, I remember to this day, Coach Bob Benson, still a good friend. I said, Coach, this ain't Nebraska. I mean, I don't miss anything except a bus ride. And he goes, got to make a choice. Shook his hand, said, thank you. And I quit playing football that day and called my family, said, I'm racing. I found out 15 years later that it was Coach Thompson that told him to make that choice. And then he went back to coach and said, can I renege on that? And you know, bring him back on the football team. And coach said, no. And so coach never was a big fan of what I, he didn't understand it. And then him and came out to a late model race when I first started in the nineties and he came out and watched the race and, and never forget. I mean, Bill Russell, we're talking 98, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of, of, you know, black 
presence at the racetrack. But here's John Thompson and Bill Russell, two seven foot tall, you know, icons of, 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 you know, basketball. And they're watching me out there and they're listening. They're on the, they, they have a headset. They're listening, get it done. And coach looks and says, boy, you're a fool. What are you doing out here? You know, and I'm like, oh, coach, you know, come on. He, then he came, the next race he came to was Richmond in 2003. And why do I remember that race so well, Michael? It was the race that Bobby Hamilton Sr. wrecked me after the checkered flag intentionally and was mad about something else. We finished like sixth and seventh and he came down from the top and turned me into the fence after the checkered flag. And we're standing on pit road afterwards and John Thompson was standing there and Michael, he just, the, you had to understand coaches looks. And he looks at me and goes, that man tried to kill you. <laughs> I said, no, sir. He was just mad about somebody else and took it out of me. He goes, no, that man took a vehicle and tried to kill you, boy. I do not like this. I will not come back. You do it what you do. You're good at it, but I don't want any part of it. Wow. Those, <laughs> those, are, those are great memories that you have yeah. with, with, with the, one of the greatest ever in, in college basketball, just in basketball. Um, and just, just so I don't bash NASCAR too bad, Michael, he did watch every race I was in, and he did like watching me race. He just didn't like the – he felt we were more, more less safe in that car than on a basketball court, and I tried to tell him I was more safe in that car than I was on his basketball court. Well, you talk about your uh, – John Thompson and, and your father and how much he meant to you. Was your father – cool with you graduating from I mean he's a racer so I'm sure he was was he cool with you graduating college and giving NASCAR a go or did he want you to get back to Vegas and help him run the casino well so I I was the one of, of my brothers I was the one that always did work in the casino I was working at 13 years old in the eighth grade at, at the coffee shop at the Binion's Horseshoe for for Mr. Mr. Binion <laughs> um, so I always was doing that when I graduated I went to work for my grandfather and I worked downtown for my grandfather uh, on and off for a bunch of years. So I was always learning the business, paying attention to the business, and I got to race. He supported my racing. Um, fortunately for me, just like you, we got other, you know, you, the goal is to try to get the greatest drug in the world, opium, other people's money. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we worked to get sponsors and I had sponsors. We had Napa for a long time. And, but all through that, dad supported it. Dad was a racer. Dad loved racing. He was living, as my mom used to say, he's living vicariously through me, you know, yeah. and he loved watching it. And, you know, when we were successful, the greatest memory in the world for me is watching my father cry. I made my dad cry when we won at Texas and we won at Vegas. There's yeah. no greater memory in life than when you can make your father so proud that he's sitting there, you know, especially my dad's one of those guys that probably like your dad, that, that era, you know, don't show love, don't show affection, you know, right. or, you know, and, and there he is with doing this, trying to turn around and be like, I got him. I got him, you know, so he, he supported it from the get go. And of course, I mean, I had a 20 year career. I wouldn't have had it if we didn't support it. And it also was part of our business model. He used it when it was the Barbary coast racing team and he raced and we sponsored Walker Evans and sponsored all the guys we sponsored. We sponsored Indy cars in the eighties. We, we have always believed in racing as an advertising venue. It's our customer. It's our people right. type of thing. So it worked great for me. We still sponsor Daniel Hemrick today in a few races. We still, we got a lot of Vegas kids that uh, we do a lot for kind of behind the scenes that people don't get to see up front and, you know, we sponsor the South Point 400. You know, we, we, I mean, your guys have stayed with us. You know what, you know, we, we try to take care of all the racers when it, when it comes to us. So 
we're just racers at heart. Right on. And so you uh, went from the desert to the trucks and then um, tell me how you met Bill McAnally. How, how did he become a part of, of all this? Because y'all won two championships together in the, in the NASCAR West series. Oh no, we, we had, a, we're still good friends to this day. Um, it was that Japan race in 1998, Walker Evans was running trucks full time and he had an invitation to the twin ring Motegi uh, exhibition race. I'm kind of, I'm kind of upset a little bit that, that you don't remember, like you said, all those other people. I, you, I know you, you were there. You didn't Come mention me being there, but that's all right. Go ahead. There. That's what I, I was beating. I didn't mean it. <laughs> we were there. And, but so that 98 year Walker had an invitation, but we didn't have a car. Um, we had run a couple West races and a couple truck races, you know, just kind of learning the sport for me. They were running full time with Butch Miller in a truck. And McAnally was doing really well in the West, but didn't have like an invitation to that race. And so got word, you know, he had equipment and vehicles that could go. Walker didn't have all that, but we had the invitation. So we met. Matter of fact, I flew to Sacramento. It was 98, 23 years old, and I go there to make a deal. My dad sent me there to make a deal with this guy, Bill McAnally. I'm going to meet with him to say, let's go to Japan and do this. And I meet with him. And I moved him out of his house and I was dragging a refrigerator out his front door to move into his new house. <laughs> that was how I met Bill. And we made the deal to go to Japan. Right. And I kept driving for Walker in 99. And at the end of 99, Bill won the championship with Napa and Sean Woodside. And we were trying to move on and, and try to do a shop in Vegas and get bigger and grow. And we, we said, hey, Bill, let's partner up. Bring the Napa team, come here. We'll build you a big shop in Vegas, the shop that's still out there at the Speedway. He, he was in North Carolina, right? No, he was in Sacramento. Ah. He was in Sacramento, California, just doing the West stuff. Right. And we moved him from Sacramento here, and we built that big shop. And, and over the years, you know, the, your Napa car would be out there. We'd do appearances at the shop and stuff. And, you know, it's all, all that. We built the team for Bill McAnally. We called it Orleans Racing. And Bill was in charge, and we were going to go truck racing and had the – the whole deal and that's and we did what we set out to do we won championships and won races well bill was in charge but um you wanted a soda fountain machine in the you shop did <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, bill didn't want that uh, well so <laughs> <laughs> let's just say that i understand that i'm a little spoiled let's so to speak uh, I will freely admit that I've been very blessed in life, Michael. So you, you're spoiled, so you don't like staying in hotels that don't have hallways, do you? I don't mind staying in hotels that don't have hallways, but when, when you've got the hookers on the street, the police all night, and a gas leak in the building, I have a problem. So I will stick up for that one till the end. That was a crappy hotel. He didn't, he didn't hotel. tell me all that. He just said you want to stay in a hotel without any doors on. That was a crappy hotel we were at. Those rules changed quickly thereafter. But uh, so, so the soda fountain, my off-road shop, we have a casino, right? We have, we have just bags of soda stuff. So we had a soda fountain in my off-road shop. I wanted that in the big shop. Bill said, no, we put a, you know, a Pepsi machine in and you know, $1.25 for a drink. And I go, we can't charge these boys $1.25. That's just wrong. You know, Bill and I had different opinions. He, he was a guy that you know, made his living racing and trying to you know, and I was a kid that was like, ah, I, no, we got to take care of these guys. Bark. 
So we used to clash heads a lot. So we compromised. We got a Pepsi machine that we put in the shop and we charged 25 cents for the Pepsis. And then I went and got $150 worth of quarters and put them on top of the Pepsi machine. <laughs> he said you just dumped two bags of quarters on top of the machine and said, have at it, boys. I put the bags, I went, to, I went to the slot bags that we used to have, put them on top of the machine and said, there's the quarters for the machine. <laughs> uh, that relationship, uh, like you said, you're still friends today. Um, but that, the, the, the success you guys had together in the West Series, and then, and then you wind up at, at Penske and NASCAR. Um, Bill's, got, Bill's another guy on your list, sort of like the ones I mentioned. You got John, your dad, John Thompson, and now Bill McAnally, another fellow that's a, a, a great man and a great guy to have as a mentor. No, and, and without Bill and without Napa and what they taught me, Michael, I did 100 appearances a year. 110 appearances in 2002 and 2003 each year for Napa. They taught me how you got to take care of these people. You know, they taught me, and Napa was, as you know, Napa was very, very appearance heavy. They wanted us out there. You know, right. We had to go to the people and be there and do that. And so I learned a lot about how to take care of those sponsors, how to take care of the people, how to, how to meet with the boardroom guys, and then how to meet with the line mechanics. You know, and, and how to make both of them feel like they have a connection to you. And Bill taught me a ton about how to do that. And the people we put around were great. When, when I got my opportunity with Napa, I was 39. And so I understood the world in NASCAR. I've been in NASCAR for 16 years. I understood appearances. And I understood, you know, all you had to do for that, for that Napa shield to be on your chest. You're, what, 22 or 3? And, and you admit it, you might have been a little bit of a spoiled brat at times. Um, how, is that how bad you wanted to race? You're like, okay, if that's what I got to do, that's what I'm going to do. How did you learn that, that, that uh, mindset of doing whatever they needed you to do? I just always learned that hard work, I don't care how spoiled you are, hard work is what's going to get you somewhere. My father, my grandfather, they all taught me that. John Thompson taught me that. And I was told, this is what you need to do to keep this. Okay, where do I got to go? I leave from New Mexico. I spend 10 days in, in, you know, on the road doing every, every Napa store in New Mexico, northern New Mexico, southern Colorado, and Arizona. That's what you do every day in a different Napa store, doing an appearance, signing your name. Michael, in the end of the world, if signing my name is what it takes for me to, to make this living, I think that's a pretty easy way to make this living. You know, so if that's the worst of it, man, let's do it. I was young. I was hungry. I wanted to do it. I wanted, and that's what it took. And they taught me exactly what it needed to be to, to try to keep people happy. And it worked all through my life. Having, having Napa and, and understanding the world of NASCAR and then getting the opportunity with Mr. Penske, um, you had to think that you were heading toward a NASCAR cup championship. I would guess as a young, confident man that you were. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's, first of all, if, isn't that what we all think we're going to do? If you don't, why are you doing it? You know, I mean, of course I thought that. I mean, that's, that's where I was hoping my trajectory was. Yeah, and, and as, you, as you began to hit roadblocks and stum stumbles along the way, um, what kept you going? What, what was your motivation? How, you knew you had been a champion in the West. You had won truck races. What kept you going? You know, the, the, it's kind of that tin cup thing, you know, where when you hit it right, 
you just it feels so right. You know, you know you got something. And you know, the the bad part was I the good part was I did it my way. Everything that I did, it was my way. And I'll I'll freely take the the goods and the bads and there was plenty of both. Um I don't blame the rules. I don't blame other people. I you know, things happen along the way, but it was a lot of the things were my choices, some were, some weren't. But every time you know, you know that you're still good. You know you have that ability. And you're just trying to get it all put together. You know, you're trying to find pieces and parts and, and life has its ups and downs. And then you go and you go to a race and you, you're, you just absolutely flat out kill it. You know, and you, and you end up maybe not winning. You finish second, you know, an inch behind the guy. And you're like, oh, God, we're right there again. You know you can do this. You know, you know you got it. And in 2012, when I went to Richard Childress Racing, that was what I told Richard. He gave me a part-time schedule in truck, cup, and bush, or Xfinity, nationwide. And I was like... Bush. It was bush, I think, still that year. I still call it bush, at least. Me and you, we call it bush. I still call it Winston Cup. But I'm anyway, gonna, It's going to be bush always for me, but that's, that's right. a different So, But I said, hey, look, I'm here to prove that I can still do this. And if I can't, it's one year, I'm gone. And in that year, I had like, I think it was seven Xfinity races, had five top fives, had, you know, 10 truck races, had seven top fives. You know, I mean, I'm like, okay, we're still good. Let's go. You know, and then we came back and started winning races again. And it was like, all right, you know, you know, you can still do it. You just, the main thing is our sport more than any other sport in the world is more mentally tough than any sport. And I've played sports. Right. There is no sport as mentally difficult as ours. And as, as beating and degrading and all the net, our sport has more negatives mentally than any other sport out there. Yeah. And, and as you well know, I dealt with all those too. And oh, cool. to, to be able to, to, to prove to, to the world, I didn't, like, I didn't have to prove it to myself ever. You, you, you have a chip on your shoulder. When you won that Daytona 500, you knew you're like, suck it, Trebek. You know, that's right. You know I mean? That's, <laughs> That feeling's the greatest. You didn't have to prove it to yourself either. You're that same athlete. You're like, let me show the world. And then, and then it does feel good to prove it, prove it to everybody else, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, hey, we did it before the social media world. How about these kids today? We knew that people didn't like us, but they weren't in your face every hour of the day. You just knew they were there. Right. You knew that those haters were there and around. And, but nowadays, the kids, it's, it's, it's right here. Yeah. You know, Every second of every day, they get to see that that hate, that anger that comes from some of these people, and it's bad. And yeah. social media can be so great, but it can be so difficult. I, Riley Herbst, Noah Gregson, these kids that are Vegas boys that I, you know, I try to try, keep a little hand in their career. I, I, I do not envy what they go through right now. It's, yeah. it's tough. But, you know, I don't think it's real. I, I, I try not to. And I know I'm old and they're not old, obviously. <laughs> I just don't think it's real. You know, I just think it's all fake. And, like, I know that's, what kind of – I know that's what, our mindset. That's you and I. We have that mindset. Right. We're, we're, we're a generation, you know, before this. Or so. <laughs> or, or so, yeah. <laughs> we, we, you know, this is – this mindset now is we had a mindset. You got taught by Richard and Dale and, and your brother and – and you got that toughness beat into you by those guys that way. These kids, it just, I'm not saying that they're softer than we were, but they're softer than we were, you know? And so 
mentally it's it's to i just i look at this stuff and go man it's it's a tough world for these kids I, you just said something that made me think of something so i you were born in the 70s and raised in the 80s i watch uh movies you know from vegas in the 60s and 70s and if if you didn't pay your gambling debt you might get your ankle broken <laughs> you didn't have to see any of that like, you didn't have to see any of that did you <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I've never, never heard or seen anybody with, with missing a, 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 an exterior digit. <laughs> I got you. So it's a, it's a friendlier place now, right? It's, it's a, the world is not what it was from the 1970s. Yes, and so All right, we'll just leave it at that. Um, the opportunity to, to run one more race, right? One more. That's it. One's left. What, what do you tell me? Your thoughts as, and. And you will go through this because you're younger than me. You will think, I ran my last race in 2017, and it was it was last month when I finally decided that that that, that was my last race. You you think it's your last race, yeah. but no. but as you head toward it, with the 20 some years in NASCAR, uh, reflect reflect a little bit on what it's meant to you and where you are mentally when you go to Talladega, because I know you're going to be on the gas. Oh, yeah, no, I, I mean, look, the bad part is you're not going to see me on the television until the last 15 laps, because I'm going to do the same thing I do every time to get there at the end. So anybody that's a fan of mine, you know that for the first three quarters of the race, sit back, have a cup of coffee, you know, relax. Let me explain that. Up. Let me explain, explain that to the fans. I was the same way when I got my chances. I would, I, I just would, would ride. And the, my justification for that was not necessarily that I would get in a big crash if I didn't. My justification was, you know, I'm, I'm old. I, I need, I, I don't race very often. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta see how this car does around. Other, you know, I gotta hone my skills for half this three quarters, most of this race. And when it's time to go, I'll be ready to go. So, so mine is, I will admit for the first time last race, there was a little of that in my head. <laughs> um, but, and that's why I'm saying it's time to go. But normally it's just, look, what does it take to get to the end of these things? I'm not racing for points, Michael. I don't need stage points. The end of a stage to me means absolutely nothing. So I got to, it's discretion and valor. I like to use the old bull, young bull scenario. You know what I mean? I've, I'll wait till the end and, and see if I can't get the whole field instead of lead lap 50 for 10 stage points. Right. Uh, so it works out for me. It, it, it's the way. And, and, you know, you gotta, you gotta have those friends. You gotta make some and do that stuff. But with this being my last race, the main thing I was looking at in 2017, when I retired, retired, I didn't expect to have these four years. When I, when I said goodbye at Homestead in 2017, I, I had, we knew that 2017 I was retiring. We didn't tell the world. Nobody was going to give me a retirement tour. Nobody was going to care that I disappeared and, you know, wasn't racing anymore. It wasn't like I was going to have the Jimmy Johnson tunnel named after me. And, I mean, and, I, and I was, when I quit, nobody cared either. You know, it, just, it was just the way it goes. I, I was happy knowing that this was going to be my year. I had Shane Wilson as my crew chief. I had Harley Roush, the mechanic that had been with me since 99, still there. I had all these guys that I wanted to be on my team, had a great family team at RCR, had, you know, people that had been with me for four or five years. And we told them at the start, this is it. So the whole year I got to kind of have that reflective year. Right. It was great. 
And at Homestead, we told everybody after the race, some, some reporters saw family taking pictures and all this stuff and people going, you coming back? <laughs> you know, so some people caught on to it. But then the Beards gave me these four years that, that Michael, totally unexpected. Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't anything that this came, this came out of nowhere. And they gave me these four years to kind of do like you did, which is run the places that you and I have a chance to win at, a great equalizer of a race, stuff that we're good at. It hasn't changed. That style of racing, except for the bump draft years, hasn't changed. And thank God we're not in the bump draft years anymore. Um, so for me, this has all been kind of a gravy. You know, I, I, was, I was ready to say goodbye and be done. And the Beards kept saying, come on, come on. And I'm like, okay. You know, and, and so for me, it's, I just feel how lucky I was to get these extra four years in. Right. It just, it was a bonus. I'm in the bonus round of Mario where I didn't expect it. And hey, look, I found something. It's been a great run. I want to go out with another great chance to win. I mean, hell, at Daytona a month ago, coming out of turn four, I was third. I hit the two Chevys to the lead. And Michael, all I saw was a checkered flag and asphalt, not a single car. And I'm like, another chance to win. And then I lost my pusher and I was doing the go-kart hop. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> but, but still, a chance to win. That's all you ever ask. That's all you and I probably have ever asked for. Just give me a chance to be there. Just give me that chance to win. And I had another one. The beers are giving me one last shot. I'm going to do all I can. And when I walk away, yeah, there's going to be times that I say, God, should I really do that Daytona 500 next year? For me, I feel comfortable saying I'm not going to worry too much about it because I'm going to the Baja 500 this week. I'm going to be racing the Baja 1000 in November. I still race my desert, the stuff that I want. I'm back to where I grew up. I got my kids. I haven't told anybody. I didn't post much about it. I'll break the news here. My youngest son had his first off-road race last weekend. Oh. Uh, we got a DNF because of fear. Um, he almost flipped down a 30-foot high hill, and he's seven, and that scared Daddy more than I think it scared him. And Daddy's voice scared him more than it, he was scared. And so we pulled him off the track. Uh -huh. um, but so I, 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 don't, I, I always said I wouldn't start them that young. I wouldn't do that. Yet here I am with my seven-year-old in a race car. So I'm back in the desert. I will have the desert until you pull the, the you'll pry that cold steering hand, steering wheel out of my hands, you know, when, when I'm done. And hopefully my boys want to go play in the desert. And if they do anything after that, well, you know what? I'll support it just like my daddy did me. Let's see how it goes. Well, this has been a, a, a pleasure, Brandon. Thank you so much for your time and, and you. Uh, your stories. Uh, I can't wait to... To, to see what happens with the, the kids and, and <laughs> what, what future they have, because that's, that's, this is generational and you've got a, you've got a special, special uh, opportunity here to watch your kids go racing. Yeah. I'm going to try to steer them to golf and a medical degree. That's where I'm hoping for. Unfortunately, one of them doesn't look like he's yeah. Yeah. Like his well, you're, you're a, you're a great guy and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate having on. Wow. If that doesn't make you smile, nothing will. So much fun catching up with my buddy, Brennan Gone. We had a little conversation uh, after the podcast about what we have in common. And that is, you know, oh, I'm, he's Daryl's little brother. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, he's that rich kid from Vegas. 
and what all we went through in order to be able to uh, be a part of this this great sport for so many years. So um, the reflection, the fun uh, chatting with Brendan was was awesome. Be sure to tell your friends about Walter Unfiltered. You can find us on all of Fox Sports social media channels. Uh, you can also check us out on your favorite podcast app. And heck, it's a lot of fun. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Until then, we'll see you later. Thank you.